Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. With us today is partner Beth Farrell to discuss developments in design patent law. Beth, thanks for joining us. From the middle of 2022 to the halfway point of this year, the Federal Circuit was pretty quiet on design patents. But then in late June, the Federal Circuit granted a petition for an en banc rehearing in a dispute among automakers. And in September, it issued its long-awaited decision in the Columbia Sportswear case. So I want to dig into both of those. Let's start with Columbia Sportswear versus Serious Innovative Accessories, which was decided on September 15th. Can you give us some background on that one? Sure. So this is quite a long-running case. This is actually the second trip to the Federal Circuit for this case. Uh, Columbia had a design patent that protected its design for a heat-reflective material. Um, The images in the design patent were quite simple. They just showed an elevational view of a swatch of fabric with a particular wave design. Uh, What was interesting about the patent, though, was in addition to that particular image, the patent also included many other images showing that fabric used on a number of different types of articles of manufacture. This included pants, shoes, and in this case, what's most relevant is gloves. So Cirrus sells products that use a material that Cirrus calls the heat wave, which also includes a wave design, but notably the Cirrus products also include the Cirrus logo sort of interspersed within the wave design. The first time that this case came to the federal circuit, the uh, district court had granted summary judgment of infringement and the trial at that point was only about damages. Uh, The federal circuit vacated that finding, noting, among other things, that the federal circuit precedent did not prohibit the fact finder from considering an ornamental logo like the Cirrus logo here on the accused product. So what had happened there was the federal circuit felt that the jury had been incorrectly instructed on this point of law. So the case went back to the district court. Infringement was also tried to the jury. And at that point, the jury found that the Cirrus product did not infringe. What happened the second time around? Well, at this point, the federal circuit opined on two important issues, both of which uh, were really not issues that it had considered in any sort of depth before. The first one was it considered the issue of how to determine what is the comparison prior art for the ordinary observer test. And you may recall that the ordinary observer test is the test for design patent infringement. The court also looked at the role of the defendant's logo when it appears in the design of the accused product. Okay, let's talk about the comparison prior art. I understand this was an issue of first impression for the court. It was. And to understand uh, why this is an important decision, I think it's important to go back to 2008, which was actually the last time that the court considered a design case on Bonk, and that was in the Egyptian goddess versus Suissa case. And in that case, the uh, Federal Circuit announced a modified ordinary observer test. And prior to that, there had been two tests. There had been the point of novelty test and the ordinary observer test. And the Federal Circuit did away with the point of novelty test. But in doing so, it modified the ordinary observer test. And what the Federal Circuit said was that the ordinary observer test, which is the question, is the test that asks the question, 
from the perspective of the ordinary observer, who is a typical purchaser of the kind of goods that are accused of infringement, would that typical purchaser find the claim design and the accused design to be substantially the same? They don't have to be identical, but they need to be substantially the same. And a piece of what the Federal Circuit added was this idea that the ordinary observer is deemed to know about the relevant prior art and is supposed to use that prior art as a framework for making this comparison. And the court noted that in close cases, this framework or this frame of reference can be helpful. Really, the the court highlighted the importance of the background prior art, which it's sometimes called, or in this case, the court calls it comparison prior art. And the court talked about why this was important. They said, well, you know, looking at this prior art can help you understand ways in which the claim design and the accused product are similar to each other. And and maybe that similarity is it departs from or is different from the prior art. So that could be significant. Or you might look at it and say, oh, actually all things of this type have this particular feature. And so therefore this, this element that we found that looks similar is maybe not all that important. Again, you have to look at the background prior art to understand that. One of the things that was left open by Egyptian goddess is exactly how you figure out what that prior art is, what that comparison prior art is. Um, The court noted that there was no jury instruction that provided a standard by which the jury should make this decision. And so the court heard argument from both parties, but basically agreed with Columbia on this point. And Columbia's argument, which the federal circuit agreed with, was that in light of some other recent decisions, really the comparison prior art should be limited to the same types of articles of manufacture that are the subject or that are identified in the claim. And this is is kind of continuing along a line of cases that's been going on for a couple of years now. First, we had the Curver-Luxenberg case where the federal circuit basically said that the design claim is limited not only by the images that are shown in the figures, but also in the words of the claim. You may recall that a design patent claim is effectively a design for a widget as shown and described. And in that case, widget would be this article of manufacture. And so in Curver Luxembourg, the court said, well, if you've picked a particular widget as your article of manufacture, then your claim is going to be limited to widgets and things that are kind of similar to widgets. And then in In Re Surgisil, which was another case that came out in 2021, the court said that for the purposes of anticipation, the relevant prior art should also be prior art that's of a, a similar article of manufacture to what's in the claim. So with that backdrop, the court kind of continued along this same line and decided that the scope of the comparison prior art should also be limited to basically the article of manufacture or something close to it. What does this mean moving forward? Well, what's interesting is, is as we discussed a moment ago, this was a claim, Columbia's claim was to a heat reflective material. So it wasn't just material, it was a heat reflective material. And one of the uh, things that the court suggests is that in the future, that may actually require claim construction. So if 
if, you know, heat reflective material may not require claim construction, but you can imagine a situation where some article of manufacture might require it. And in that case, the court was suggesting that perhaps the court needed, the federal circuit was suggesting that perhaps the district court needed to provide some further guidance so that the jury who is the, you know, this is a question of fact, what is a comparison prior art? It's the jury's job to figure out whether something is an acceptable comparison prior art or not. And so the court was suggesting that perhaps the district court might need to provide some guidance in terms of, of kind of additional claim construction, which is actually personally to me kind of uh, funny because there was a time when it thought that you didn't need to do any claim construction for design patents. And I think in light of, you know, sort of the Ethicon case and now in light of this case, it seems like claim construction for design patents is alive and well. Right. And so where did the court come out on the second issue involving the logo? Right. So this was the the second issue. And, and this was uh, reminiscent of what the court did in the first time that this case came to them. But here, Columbia challenged a jury instruction saying that the jury instruction was confusing the standard for trademark infringement with the standard for design patent infringement. And what Columbia said was that consumer confusion as to the source, which is the really the question you ask in a trademark case, that Columbia's position was that that was irrelevant to design patent infringement and that the jury should have been told that. Columbia also said that the jury should have been told that it didn't need to find a likelihood of consumer confusion. Again, that's the standard for trademark infringement in order to find design patent infringement. You know, the court essentially said, yes, Columbia, we hear what you're saying and went through a, a kind of a nice description and explanation of the difference between trade dress and design patent infringement sort of summarizing it by saying that design patent infringement is not concerned with the issue of consumer behavior, which is really the province of trademark infringement. And the court did confirm that design patent infringement can't be avoided by labeling, which is what was in the case law before and really what people thought was the standard for such a long time. But in this case, what the federal circuit said was that that doesn't mean though that logos are irrelevant either. And what they said was that the precedent doesn't prohibit a fact finder from considering an ornamental logo or the placement of that logo or the appearance of that logo um, in, in its consideration of design patent infringement. You know, this, this sort of leaves open a question, which is, you know, the, the, the court says that, that consumers might not be confused about the source but that the ordinary observer could still find the two designs to be similar enough to constitute design patent infringement. But at the same time, a logo could render the accused design to be so different that it is actually dissimilar and not infringing from the patented design. This seems like a really hard thing, I think, to ask a jury to do. You know, jurors are not experts in any sort of law, much less the intricacies of design patent versus trademark law. I think, I think recognizing perhaps that this would be a heavy lift for the jury, the court uh, did, the federal circuit did say that it thought the district court was best positioned to decide when and whether to provide clarification to the jury during trial. So in the end, I think what's, you know, it's, it's fairly clear what the federal circuit's position is on this with respect to the law that logos can play a role. Unfortunately, I feel like they 
kick the can a little bit down to the district court to try to explain this uh, nuanced distinction for the for the jurors at trial. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's move on to the automotive case, LKQ versus GM. Can you first just update us on the procedural posture of the case? Where does it stand now? Yeah, this case just kind of keeps going and going. Um, so this is uh, this case in late June, the court issued an order to rehear this case en banc. And as I mentioned a few moments ago, this is kind of exciting in the design patent world because the last time we had this was in 2008 with the Egyptian goddess case. But what was interesting was the court actually issued a series of questions. There were six questions and they were all about the design patent obviousness test. A number of amicus briefs have been filed and both parties have also filed additional briefing on these points. And this matter is now going to be set for oral argument on February 5th. Just to provide some background on this case, although I think we've reached a point now where the the case is a little bit beyond the facts of the case. What originally happened was LKQ is a secondary parts maker. They make automobile replacement parts. Originally, they had a a sort of a contractual relationship with GM. They were making parts with GM's permission. And then at some point that relationship um, ended and GM charged LKQ's products with infringement of its design patents. And these are, you know, replacement parts for fenders and bumpers and, and, and that sort of thing, like crash parts effectively. LKQ responded by saying that GM's parts or patents, sorry, were invalid as obvious over the prior art. And they filed a series of IPRs and PGRs against these patents. LKQ lost this argument at the uh, PTAB, and they they appealed that decision to the Federal Circuit. The Federal Circuit affirmed the PTAB, basically saying that the PTAB had appropriately applied what's called the Rosen test, which is the which is currently the test for design patent infringement. There was a dissent, though, by Judge Stark, which I think really invited and encouraged LKQ to file a petition for rehearing. LKQ did that, and the court uh, granted that petition. Just again, by way of background, it's important to understand what the sort of current test for design patent obviousness is. It's the same test we've had for more than 40 years, Um, It's called the Rosen test. And the Rosen test involves an identification of a primary reference that is, quote unquote, basically the same as the claim design. So if you find something that is basically the same as claim design, so it's an appropriate primary reference, then you may, if you wish, try to combine that reference with one or more secondary references. And the way that you know that something is an acceptable secondary reference is that it is, quote, so related to the primary reference that the appearance of certain ornamental features in one would suggest the application of those features in the other, end quote. And so you can sort of get a sense of this, not exactly in in application, but in in sort of theory, it tracks what you do in a utility patent case. Once you've come up with this kind of hypothetical reference, which is this combination of a primary and one or more secondary references, you then put that together and you apply that using the ordinary observer test, which I discussed a moment ago. And that if if you find that there's it's substantially the same in the eye of the ordinary observer, then you have a, a claim design that is invalid as obvious. 
So with all that background, uh, the court asked a number of questions in its request for hearing on Bonk. And I'm going to summarize those questions. You're welcome to read them. They're actually quite long. But the summary is, does the KSR decision, which was the 2007 Supreme Court decision on utility patent obviousness, does that overrule Rosen? That's sort of the main big question that the Federal Circuit asked. But then as a follow-up, they wanted to know, okay, if KSR doesn't actually overrule Rosen, does it somehow suggest that the court should eliminate or modify Rosen? You may remember in KSR, there was this desire for a flexible or flexibility in the obviousness test. And so the second question basically says, well, should we apply something similar into the Rosen test and does the Rosen test need some sort of modification? The the Federal Circuit also wanted to know if Rosen was eliminated or modified, then what should the test be? Is there any precedent to support this idea that Rosen has already been modified? And what would be the impact of eliminating the Rosen test? So as you suggested earlier, this case has received a lot of attention in the design patent bar. Who has weighed in and what have they been saying? Yeah, so um, this has been a a lot of activity. We don't usually see this much activity for design patent cases, but, uh, you know, LKQ and GM both filed briefs um, giving their thoughts, but also the Solicitor General weighed in on briefs. And uh, that, that was kind of exciting because the last time I recall the Solicitor General weighing in on design issue was at the Apple Samsung case when that was at the uh, Supreme Court. So this is this is kind of exciting that they took the time to write a brief. But uh, the briefs basically fall into three categories. There were six briefs that were filed, that six amicus briefs that were filed in support of LKQ, and those generally fall along the idea that uh, design patent uh, the design patent obviousness test was overruled by KSR, or that it should be eliminated or modified. Um, most of these. Uh, amicus briefs don't really offer much in the way of a suggestion about what the new test should look like, but they do think that the test should be really flexible. These briefs mostly came from other companies in the replacement parts industry, as well as uh, the insurance industry. The insurance industry is incentivized to have cheaper replacement parts because that uh, lowers the amount that they have to pay out in the event of an accident. The second category was seven briefs, seven amicus briefs that were filed in support of GM. These briefs basically said there wasn't really anything wrong with this test. You know, the test is not perfect. No legal test is perfect, but uh, this is the test we've had for more than 40 years. And there are all sorts of settled expectations in the public regarding design patents, all of which, interestingly enough, were examined under the Rosen test. And so... The general thinking there was that the test wasn't overruled by KSR and should largely be left intact. These briefs come from a variety of authors, including some design-focused companies that have pretty significant design patent portfolios, including Apple, Ford, Kia, um, and then also major IP associations, including IPO and INTA, and finally, uh, designers themselves through the uh, Industrial Designers Society of America and the Alliance for Automotive Innovation. The third category had four amicus briefs. This included the Solicitor General, and those uh, briefs purported to support neither party and made a mix of arguments along the lines of the first two. 
All right. So any predictions on how this case will turn out? Yeah. So if if the Apple-Samsung decision is any indication, I think the court is going to look very closely at the comments and thoughts that were offered by the Solicitor General. So I think looking at that brief a little more closely is probably a, a good way to get a sense of where the court might go. This is an interesting brief. So the Solicitor General says that, that it's supporting uh, the Rosen test, but not the Rosen test's quote unquote rigid application. The thing that's a little strange is, is that I feel like that statement about generally supporting the Rosen test is very different than a lot of what else they write in the brief. So elsewhere in the brief, they suggest that the the standard basically the same, which is the standard for determining the primary reference, that that should be changed. So what we should do instead is think about whether a proposed primary reference is a suitable starting point by having a similar overall visual effect. They don't explain exactly what they mean by this. I think they mean it's a lesser standard. So in my mind, basically the same is more similar than this new suitable starting point proposal. But that's their first proposal. Their second proposal is to eliminate the so related requirement. You would still need some standard by which you would combine a primary reference with a secondary reference, but the Solicitor General suggests that we should instead focus on the uh, designer of ordinary skills, experience, creativity, and common sense, thinking about which ornamental features are commonplace, which features are motivated by functional considerations. So again, the, the Solicitor General, I guess, proposes keeping the framework of the test, but changing both parts of the test. They think that doing this will keep the test from ending prematurely. And this is one of the arguments that LKQ made, which was that if you can't find a primary reference, then your obviousness inquiry is, is sort of ending prematurely. I, I think that's an interesting argument because in part, I feel like if you can't find a primary reference, then maybe that means that your obviousness test is not going to come out you know, in, in the in the favor of obviousness, but they had it phrased a little bit differently in their brief. In the end, I, I think that what the Solicitor General is trying to do is to follow the spirit of KSR, because I think even the Solicitor General recognizes that KSR itself probably didn't overrule Rosen. But that that is sort of what I got from reading their brief, is they're trying to take this spirit of flexibility and they're trying to come up with a way of pretty significantly modifying Rosen in order to meet this goal of flexibility. But for whatever reason, they've decided they, they still want to keep the Rosen test itself. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see how this one turns out. Beth, thanks for being with us. Really appreciate it. Of course. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner, Beth Farrell. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.